0: Team. This was a real big standoff in a way between America and Russia in one way, or the USSR, but it was this team that felt like David entering in. And all the US team were guys who were uh, very low level uh, uh, semi pro players or none at all, or just amateurs going against this powerhouse dominant team. Russia or USSR until that time. Uh, in the Olympic uh, uh, Games, were uh, 27 and 1. That's like, uh, you don't like those numbers when you're facing the opponent you're going against. They outscored their opponents 175 to 44. They were dominant in everything that they did. They were thought to, again, have one of the most dominant teams with the most top three positional players in the world. And here comes this U.S. team who met them, and it shocked and changed the entire world. And it brought our country in some way together. But it also was this David and Goliath moment. In business, you can see it. David and Goliath is continually used this miraculously overcoming a system or an issue or even just a company. And so business uh, business uh, writers, uh, authors have been writing about David and Goliath as a metaphor for a long time. Malcolm Gladwell has a very interesting book about it. It has a couple really interesting TED Talks. He has a different view on the historical part of this story. But nonetheless, he equates, what do you do with giants? That brought that into our mainstream of, uh, of thinking. He wrote a great book called David and Goliath in 2013. In court cases, this was probably one of the bigger court cases probably no one has ever heard of, and it was just one where it was just a David and Goliath moment, except this lady's name was Julie Lemon versus uh, Putney Memorial Hospital in Georgia. It's the largest hospital in Georgia, and they wanted eminent domain to take her house, and they, so they got the city to condemn the house, and she was 93 years old. And she wanted to fight to keep that house, because she said, I lost my husband while I lived in this home. Uh, I uh, I helped my grandchildren and great-grandchildren in this home. I will not lose this home. I mean, this lady, when you think about this lady taking on the city, and she won. She won this fight, which everyone thought she wasn't going to win, because they wanted to put a daycare center there. She ended up getting this, the Memorial Hospital to pay her five times the amount of the home's uh, value. <laughs> and also pay her the entirety of the amount of the home in moving costs. And she moved to another place and was happy about it. It was just one of those situations where you have a David and Goliath situation. And then you have people who name their pets. I mean, you see these, like, cute little dogs who were, you know, who were. Who are like a, and I feel like in our mind when we see a David and Goliath moment or a giant moment, it's like, there's no way this poor little guy stands a chance. But David and Goliath isn't actually a story about David and Goliath necessarily, necessarily. I think that would do the story an injustice, and the narrator would never have wanted that to happen. Who's writing? This story's about God, the whole story's about God. And it's not about the underdog versus the uh, uh, giant or the over-armored man versus a skillful rock thrower. This is about the Almighty God, when it seems impossible, makes things possible. This is a parable, if you will, of this character of God. When you look at the David and Goliath story... And you think of it in reflection to your life when you're struggling, facing a giant in your life, if you will. It's a parable. It's a reminder also. It it, it excavates the character of God in this story. I titled this message, Every Believer's Battle. I was thinking of really cool titles like, Everyone's Got a Giant. You know what I mean? But I was like, you know what? No, actually the truth is if we're talking about God through this story, this, this is every believer's battle. And it will be a battle of fear or having faith beyond fear, flesh, and futility when it seems lost. Having faith beyond those moments of when they're headed your way and when you're facing a giant to yourself. Uh, I love this quote from Massino Loeo, and he said this. He was a a business writer, speaker, author, I mean, just... His mind on business, I love married with the gospel, is really, really well done. But he, when he was reflecting on David, said this thought, and I thought, oh, this is so how it is when it comes to God. He said, small stars still light up big skies. And that's a great, I think, image when we see this little boy, David, jump on a scene and God using this, this kid to really change an entire nation through God's hand and his work. It reminds me of this story. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel 17. And I'll give you a little bit of background on this. This is where the whole story takes place from beginning to end on this story of David and Goliath. David has already been secretly anointed like we had talked about last week. Meaning Saul was anointed as king. He was the people's choice. And God picked the person who would fit the people's choice. The people did not elect Saul. They just elected that they wanted a king. And then Saul was picked by God as a reflection of the people. Very clear. But Saul could not hold up to the obedience that God's looking for to lead his people. And so he then has David anointed and removes the, 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 ultimately the authority and anointing from Saul in the spirit. But David's just, he's tending his sheep He's the youngest of all the boys. And you know how it is with your youngest? Like, everybody picks on him. He always gets the worst jobs and the least amount of food. Do 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 your youngest have this this way? But they're probably babied, right? And then beat up more for being babied, right? So David is just this kid who is just at the end of the line. And I think the story is beautiful because of that. Because he's the one everyone looked over, but God did not. He has the job of herding sheep, and he's doing it at the time of the story, until he enters the story. Herding sheep in that day for the youngest was much like when you tell your kids, like, everybody's got chores, you get to vacuum, you get to wipe stuff down, you get to do the dishes, and then you, you're on poop patrol. Go pick up all the poop, right? It's the lowest of the jobs, right? But his brothers were called to war. And we don't maybe realize this because we live in the United States where we have this unbelievably secure military. These people did not. They had just formed a government outside of God. Before God won all their wars, now they're depending on the king to win the war. And so he calls everyone to war. And so David's father was, not old, was too old to fight in the war, so all of the brothers went. And so David potentially in this moment could lose all of his brothers Based on the army that was coming their way, they were going to lose them all based on that without God. They were so used to God winning wars for them. They were legendary in the land. But now they had gone on to a new system, a monarchy, instead of a theocracy where God led. Now they are trusting in man. And so the whole thing begins to shift and they're fighting the Philistines. It's a lot like this. This ragtag group of guys called out of their home, leaving with their tools in their hands to go fight a, a formidable war machine. And so they're led out into this kind of this valley where it, 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 it's kind of a, the only way for this army really to get in as successful as they want to conquer the nation. But they've got to kind of come through this gauntlet in a way. And so they're coming through, and there's this valley there, and they're camping there. It's almost like when they show up with their weapons of warfare. It's, I would imagine it's a lot like this overwhelming feeling that when David's brothers are going, they probably might be going to their death. And David probably knows this as well. And it would feel like, I think, with World War II, what Britain must have felt as they were sending troops over when most of Europe was occupied, by Nazi Germany and they had a very, very proficient war machine. It was their technology that gave them the advantage to destroy nations. And so here they are now faced in this moment with this invasion. It was a full invasion. It was a full takeover. This Israel would have been changed and brought into slavery in a way. Uh, (laughs) What's really interesting is they were advanced weapons of warfare. Uh, The Philistines were one of the very few, if not one of the only in the region that mastered iron working and they would not share this technology with anyone else. So they used it for warfare. It's kind of like if we discover something in the uh, United States military or uh, whatever, we're not going to share this with everyone. And so they were in a position where people couldn't compete at all. And so all these guys are coming out, and they, here's what they face. They face 3,000 war chariots. that carry two people for destruction and a crew that are like little assassins that go out and jump off in groups of four. And they will destroy tons and tons of people, and they have all of the weapons that they need. They had 6,000 horsemen, and at this time they have 48,000 soldiers. Imagine this when you think about it. In Israel, the Bible says that only two people had actual weapons of war that was Jonathan and Saul. Everyone else had tools that they even had to go to the Philistines to have sharpened and shaped so they could even fight against these swords and spears and armor that they had and these chariots that would run them over. This was impossible. It wasn't going to work. They brought a knife to a gunfight. It was a terrible, terrible situation for Israel. And it looked like it was going to be the end. But this is what they wanted. They no longer wanted to trust that God could turn an army like that into a disaster in one moment. They just couldn't rely and trust on that as much. They wanted to be like the Philistines. And they got their eyes caught. On what they could see and lost track of the history of their nation. I feel like we can relate to this sometimes. God has done amazing miracles in your life. He's done amazing miracles in my life. He, along the way, has uh, uh, been a part of giants tumbling in my life. And then when I become secure, when I become, I, I don't know, I feel like, okay, I got this. And then I look at how other people are handling their life, I think, God, I know you're seated as king, but I need to maybe put myself here in these decisions. We can all relate to this. These are people just like us. But here's the thing. This is the moment that Saul was elected for. This fight. He was elected to deal with the Philistines. And here's what happens from the king that they wanted to deal with the Philistines. They're all hiding and waiting behind Saul. And we'll get a chance to see what happens when someone steps out of faith and into fear. But this is the moment for the king. And I think this is why he was elected in a sense. This is what all of his troops are going uh, and saying, wait, this is why we pay taxes. Maybe you feel like this too. This is why we pay taxes. This is why we give up our land. This is why you've taken our food. This is why you've, impl- you've, you've called us all out to fight, even against maybe our will. This is why we're all here before this moment. So lead us. And the sad thing is, is it takes God to raise up a little shepherd boy to take down this army that seemed invincible. There are three relatable moments that we all experience in facing giants. And so I'll give you three of them throughout this story. And um, I will not read the story in its entirety. I think it's like 55 verses, but I will give you pieces of it that I think are really relatable to giants in our life. Um, And the first one is, as maybe some of you have been here, I know I have been here, is when I uh, have lost hope. Hope is gone. And this is where we find the nation of Israel. Hope is gone gone. It's left their heart. Have you ever felt like that when you face something? It just feels like when you try to stand, you stumble. When you, when you can't even get up, it's like, and, and, and even when people are like, hey, hey, it's good, and they're trying to show you a positive way, you're like, no, 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 no. I've been so here in the bad. Let me explain to you and bring you over to my side of telling you why it's so bad. Have you ever been there? It's, it's a rough spot to be. But I'd say this, hope is resilient under faith, and it diminishes under fear. It, hope is resilient under faith. Your faith will drive your hope, and fear will drive it down. I, was a, a, a pri- I had a privilege of playing, being a part of a basketball team that years after I graduated, probably three years after I graduated, became the most one of the most, and probably still the most dominant high school basketball team in the state of Michigan, and uh, not while I was playing, though. As soon as I was done, they all of a sudden, something happened. Something was in the water, or maybe they recruited. I don't really know, but it it was, we were a small school, but I'm explaining this for this reason, because I got to watch what happened to the teams that played this team that was what, which I would consider the greatest of all the teams of that school's teams, and I would sit, and I didn't miss any of the games. And you would see our starting lineup. And what's the lowest, like, like size of a school here in California? I don't really know it. What's it called? Do, do you guys play sports? What's what's the lowest, like, like there's like the big schools like Wilson, and then what's the small ones? They're just called small schools. Avalon and Catalina, that was like my school. Thank you. (laughs) We were called Class D, and um, Class A was, of course, the biggest and the best, and, and usually those teams won the state championship. Our team was fascinating because it was a real, we were the Goliath. Uh, we, our starting lineup was insane. We had a seven-foot-one guy who ended up playing in the NBA, a six-foot-nine guy who ended up playing uh, D1 basketball. We had a 6'7 guy who, who played the other wing or, or other uh, post position, who was 6 foot, who was six-foot-seven. Then we went to six-foot-four on a wing, and we also had a six-foot-two guy. Our warm-ups were so fun to watch because you could watch the other team die inside. It was great. And when our captain, who was seven foot one, would go out and he would shake the guy's hand and the referee would hug his waist, it was like their hearts died. And we knew it was going to be an absolute destruction. Our team, this small little Avalon school, was beating the largest schools in Michigan with NBA prospects on their team. It was unbelievable to watch. This is what happens to Israel when they see their giant. Their hearts, when they see this army, they die. They've already given up. 1 Samuel 17 eight, uh, says this, He, Goliath, he, st- he stood and he shouted at the ranks of Israel. He's asking them this question. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Why would you even come out and play? I imagine that high school basketball team that I watched... When teens will come on the court, it's like, why are we even playing? Let's just count it a win for us and a loss for you. Like, I guess we'll scrimmage. I mean, it's like their mentality. He says, am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. In verse 9, if he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. This is very, very, very arrogant. He is called their champion for a reason. This man is never lost. He's an unstoppable force. He says, If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, this is very common in antiquity, right? We would see this, and you know some of the stories. Maybe you don't, maybe I can refresh your memory, but this is called single combat. This is when two armies instead of having a ton of bloodshed they'll send out their two best warriors and they will fight to the death and then one will surrender or submit and be done. You guys remember the story of Hercules, sorry not Hercules, Hector and Achilles. This is a single combat story of a war that even went further but was supposed to be settled on a single fight. Romulus and Acron, the famous Roman story of a king killing another and then the kingdom was uh, there was no war that had to happen because the king was killed by one and probably my favorite story of all balboa and drago this was a big a big win this was the united states against the ussr at that time if you remember and watch this it was like country against country and two fought it out for the win So when he says, send somebody down, this is why the story happens. It's perfect setup for God to flex his muscles on on the Philistines. It says, and when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Isn't that interesting? Their leader and all of the people were all dismayed and greatly afraid. I remember one of the most important things my dad ever said whenever we were worried as kids. He'd always say, hey, listen, don't worry. But if you see me worrying, then you should worry, right? The leader should never worry. And Saul begins to fear. And I would say that this is a far cry from where Gideon was at, who was a judge. I don't know how many hundreds of years before. But Gideon was an unlikely person God picked who was a nobody to lead the, the, uh, the nation To freedom. And Gideon was in this one situation. I think it was Judges 7. And he has 32,000 men for war. And God says, that's way too many. Let's go with 300. And God leads these men into victory under his hand. We're so far from that level of faith in God in Israel at this time. They're seeing this with maybe even equally numbered soldiers, farmers, and, and cowering down. Israel has gone way off of track. Israel is leaderless and hopeless, but God will always have a plan. And he has a plan to bring about his glory for his nation. And he does the same for us. Like I feel like every time we feel like it's all lost or we've gotten off track, God always has a plan, and He's working on our behalf because we are His people. And so David, at that time, he's called to supply his brothers with food. They didn't have a supply chain like the sophisticated military they were against. They had uh, <laughs> the military was supported by friends and family and runners to bring them food, right? It was not sophisticated at all. They didn't even have weapons. I can see why it was so laughable to anyone who was going to invade them. And so David is on his way to bring the food. And here's the thing that you're going to see from this next part of the text when you're facing a giant or a battle that every believer will go through is that hopelessness and fear, it will spread like an infection among the people. And it has completely infected Israel. They are cowering by just one person, who does represent what the armor they're facing. Unstoppable. And they've lost heart. And they also have begun to spread this everywhere, all over the camp. Have you ever experienced that at work? Where it's almost like this, this low expectation just infects everyone, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? This, this fear infects everyone. Have you ever had that maybe at, at work or on a team that you played on in sports or even at home where it just kind of makes its way through and then pretty soon everybody is speaking the same thing, which is a low expectation and high fear. And so therefore, the team, the, 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 the company, the home life becomes stagnant. Maybe he regresses a little bit. First uh, Samuel seventeen twenty two. And David left the things uh, in charge of the keeper, meaning he left all the food and everything. And he ran to the ranks and he went to greet his brothers. Now here's where it's interesting. As he talked to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines, and he spoke the same words as before. Now, he had been doing this for 40 days. It was laughable at that point. It was 40 days before someone decides to do something. And it says, then the next line, and David heard him. Now, it's the same words, but different ears. And I think this is what the author is trying to highlight. There's a new set of ears in town. One who doesn't go by sight and one who doesn't go by what he hears. He goes by faith. And so it's interesting when the the giant's words in whatever situation in life, when they meet the ears or the eyes of someone who believes that God is who he says he is, things begin to change. It says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said... Have you seen this man who has come up? They're even trying to coach David on what's happening. And surely he has come up to defy Israel. The second part of the story is this. So we have that, right, what happens when we lose hope? We are ourselves in a place where we feel defeated. And we then will want to bring others into why we are defeated. But I want to talk about this next part, which is faith versus the flesh. And the flesh would be the things that we put our most trust in in the Bible. And there's always a moment when faith is tested by trust in our sight. Or tested by trust in the flesh. Faith will always meet that test. And will faith win or will faith lose? Depends on the person. And I think this is what's important is in this part right here, David, he remembered God's character in the biggest moments of fear. You'll see it throughout his story. He always remembered God's character in the greatest moments of fear. He never forgot who God was, like Israel had done. Let me read this part. In 1 Samuel 17, 26, it says, he says, who is this? This is David's response. This uncircumcised Philistine, this person who's not a part of God's covenant, who's not his chosen people. Who's this guy talking? That he should defy the armies of the living God. Now, theologically, this is really important what David beginning to say. He says it multiple times. He is saying, this guy worships a dead God. And we're here, we live with a living God. And why are we allowing this to happen? David didn't forget what happened years earlier where the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, taken it into their temple. The Philistines put it in front of their God, Dagon, and then... The next day, the the statue had fallen over, bowed over in front of the uh, ark, and its head was broken off. And people were freaking out because plagues broke out. out, And then finally, they begged the Israelites to take the ark back. And then gave them a lot of things to say, please, we're sorry, take it back. They have forgotten these days. When he says, ours is a living God, David believes it. And so here we see, too, that fear finds Every reason to convince you out of your faith in this next part. First Samuel, David said to Saul, he's talking to the leader now. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and he will fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight him. You're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. And this is the interesting thing. David combats Saul's fear, right, with his resume of God's works. I, I wanted to create a resume for David and put it on the screen, but I just didn't want to make it too corny. But David has this resume he lists. And he says, listen, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I tend sheep. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a, you know, and I have this sling. And But also, I've killed a lion, and I've killed a bear, and uh, God was with me then, and I'll kill this guy, too. And for some reason, that impresses Saul, or he just thinks, why don't we just get it over with? We have a willing sacrifice. <laughs> Let's just see what happens. I don't know. There was no faith there. But David uses his divine memories of God's interaction in his life to create a miracle. And he uses that to list why this is not a problem, because he knows who God is. I remember Jim and Sue, there this couple up on the screen, Jim and Sue Birmingham, we so miss them, they're in Arkansas, they moved, and they were a big part of our church but they would always share about this like they called it their like god box and it was a box that was full of like miracles and things that they wished that they sorry that they prayed for they put it in there and believed god and then they would go back later and be like god answered this god answered this god answered this it was a common practice for them and they had probably hundreds of things they prayed for that god showed up when it felt like it was never going to happen sometimes we will need that like david did when we are facing the flesh And trying to lean into faith. In this last part, David takes a moment and he shows us, I think with his obedience and his faith, that flesh always will fail you. And faith always persists. Meaning what you put your trust in. It will always fail us. We put our trust into Money, it can be gone like that. We put our trust into uh, our—you name it. Our safety and security can be gone like that. We can put it in our bodies, and it can be gone like that. Flesh will always fail, but faith will always persist. Paul says this: "Put no confidence in flesh." In Philippians three, three, Zechariah, uh, the prophet, said this: uh, "Not by might nor by power, but my spirit." He's saying this of God. It will never measure up to the power of God. David dresses down to fight Goliath. They try to armor him up with whatever they have. Even Saul gives him his own stuff. And David's like, "Ugh, I don't want this. Listen to this. First Samuel 17, 4. It says this. Then he took his staff in his hand, which he arrived with. And he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in the shepherd's pouch. Because David is a shepherd protecting the flock. He protected him against the lion, the bear, he's going to protect the flock of Israel, his future people as king, against this intruder. I love that, 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 that language of a shepherd. He's not a warrior. He's just someone who's obedient. He came authentically himself. He says, uh, but I think this, I believe that these are the thoughts when I was reading through the Psalms and this is just my personal opinion, but I believe these might have been the thoughts going through David's head as he is walking into this valley facing this giant Psalms 23. You may know it. Every, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. Psalm 46, I think, says the same thing where God maybe speaks this to him. Be still and know that I am God. These are what these moments where David is practicing his faith in the moments of impossible situations where he's going to fight a giant. But not only that, is David's faith commendable? But David sets an example for the nation to start to shift towards trusting God. He sets this example that the impossible can happen when we don't forget that we place our faith in the things that are eternal. And I don't know always the outcome, but I will say this is that faith persists and it will go further and it will be go way beyond what flesh can even do and he sets these examples he helps israel remember the god of the old the god who has always been with them in miraculous ways he helps them remember i pray that maybe you're somebody like that in someone's life that can say something miraculous happened i want to share my story oh let's lead this in faith instead of fear And it can re-inspire us to who God is or really is to you. First, last verse, 1 Samuel 17, 46, starting in part B of that verse. It says, David says this, The earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This is why I've come down here. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear." For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give, it, give you into our hand. These are the words he's saying to Goliath. I'm doing this as not only for God, but I'm doing this, and he's using me as an example to the nation. That a little shepherd boy with a little sling can take down the representation of an impossible task. And that day changed the history of Israel and the Philistines as well. And you know the rest of the story. The rest of it's really history. Could you guys bow your heads? God's way of salvation has never been our way. I think we know this. Fundamentally, it's different than ours. And so, at that time, they're trusting in horses and chariots. And sometimes we can place our trust everywhere else but the living God. But it's so different from its origins than the way we save. I think Christ is the culmination of all of the salvation stories in the Bible. He he is the representation of actually how God works. A nobody revolutionizes the entire world, this impossible task, by dying and everybody else seemed to have missed it except a few but it changed the entire planet and the very very nation that thought they could defeat him on the cross actually was one of the nations that furthered the gospel through its connections than any other nation that led to where we're at now in the world and i would say that you know when we want to rely on the flesh we miss out on divine salvation You miss out on what God's allowing you to experience. I'm not saying that we can't use intellect and knowledge and advice and counsel. But sometimes when you're facing a giant in life, it it will be by faith. And you will be able to do something through God that you never thought was possible for his glory and his glory only. But I wanted to ask this question before I pray. maybe just a private thing, but you may be going through something or maybe you're facing a giant or maybe you're in the middle of a struggle or you see a formidable force or you feel like you've only come to this battle in your life with a few tools that aren't even sharp and you see an impossible task. And maybe you can hope in that little story of David, this metaphor that we use for so many things, but maybe that metaphor belongs to you. Maybe in describing your situation, your life, you will be able to say it was a real David and Goliath situation. But if that's you, I'd like to, can I pray for you and maybe our church in general can just be in a heart of prayer as we pray for people who are facing maybe a giant in their life. Could you just raise your hand so I can just know who I'm praying for? Thank you. Thank you. Giants are tough. So let's, Let's be right in prayer for everyone in our church who is, who is in the middle of a fight. That they have the courage and obedience and strength and faith of David. No matter what they see. God, we thank you for David's example of an obedient leader, servant to you. God, help us as a church as a whole individually be that way more with you. God, I pray for every single person who raised their hand God, I ask that you just, like David, give them the courage to speak even into a very difficult situation with faith. And God, help us not go by our eyes and help us not go by our ears, but God, help us go by our faith and on your character. God, we don't know the outcome of these situations, but we do know you. And you will never leave us or forsake us. And you are with us, the living God, that every knee bows, every tongue confesses that you are Lord. So God, we lean in on you as our king. And so we thank you, just ask that you guide and direct and support supernaturally those who raise their hands in this season. And help us all not forget the king we serve, that we live by faith and not sight. And that faith is will always be greater than flesh. God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God, did you stand with me to sing this last song?